We've made it to week five of an eight-part series overviewing the whole Bible and God's kind providence. It falls to the four Gospels. The series is called Seeing God's Story. The first five sermons begged us for today's. The first five sermons covered the Old Testament. We have been hearing God make promises for thousands of years that he's going to send a redeemer, the savior that we must have. The remaining three sermons in this series, counting today, Lord willing, we'll look at the New Testament and how God has kept his promises. Nowhere is God's promise keeping character more clear than the four books that open the New Testament, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the focus of today's sermon, and the sentence summary of the whole Bible that we have been considering for these past weeks and will continue today is the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. With that in mind, listen to God's word from Luke 24. This is the voice of the risen Jesus picking up in verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help. Father, thank you for this collection of your people. Thank you for this opportunity to be reminded and to hear afresh as if for the first time the greatest news in the universe. We pray that the Holy Spirit who conceived our Savior in the womb of the Virgin Mary, sustained him through his earthly life, even the agonies of the cross, and snatched his body alive again from the dead, from the tomb, would invade our hearts now and show us the glory of the God-man, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Pull back the veil, let us see in Jesus what you see, and stun us all over again, some for the very first time, with the saving beauty of Jesus of Nazareth, we ask in his name, amen. Well, immediately following today's sermon, we're gonna have some friends of our church, church members come forward and grab the elements of the Lord's Supper and distribute them to those who will partake. So instead of coming to get them, as we customarily do here at Grace, they'll be brought to you and people will distribute those at the end of the sermon. I wanna say that now because if you believe the gospel that I'm about to preach and you're a member of a church that would allow you to take the Lord's Supper there and they preach the same gospel you're about to hear and you're not holding on to any sin for which Jesus died, you're running to the cross of Christ saying, I wanna live in him and for him, then we want you to joyfully partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Those elements will come to you. So listen to this gospel that I'm gonna proclaim. And if that's the same gospel you believe and your church embraces and you're a member in good standing there, then please partake with us. After the elements get to you, I'll lead us. We'll partake simultaneously as one body and uh, I'll be giving the instructions for that. 
For today's sermon, I want us to think about the big picture of Jesus's life in just a few minutes. Who is he? Or as he said in that passage we read, we're not going to preach it phrase by phrase, but it'll serve as the launching pad. He said, wasn't it necessary? Like, didn't it have to happen? Because the scripture said so, meaning the Old Testament, that the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long awaited redeemer that for thousands of years God had promised through his Old Testament mouthpieces, wasn't it necessary that that Savior had to suffer these things. But not only suffer, not only be mutilated and die on a cross, but also wasn't it necessary that he had to enter his glory that presupposes the resurrection and ascension of that same person who died through those sufferings? Wasn't it necessary? On what basis? Wasn't it necessary? Then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of your Bible, and all the prophets, that's the rest of your Old Testament, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's the risen Jesus saying, it's all about me and it's all about my gospel work. So we wanna look at that Jesus, who is he? There are five considerations that we'll look at in lightning speed. He is eternal incarnate, obedient, sacrifice, who alone saves us and makes us right with God. First, he's eternal. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John labor the dignity of the deity of Jesus, that he is one with God in nature. The gospel of John opens smashing a symbol. Usually songs begin with a little bit of a buildup and then a familiar chorus and then finally crescendo. Not the gospel of John. It begins with a symbol smash. It begins with a crescendo. It begins with an exclamation mark at the front of the sentence, not at the back, that he is God. You may disagree, but you will one day soon fully affirm, Jesus is God. He's the Logos, he's the Word, eternal, who has forever existed with God as God. It's the way the Gospel of John opens. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. You want to know why he can give you everlasting life and nobody else can? Because he possesses it. He's eternal. He can give you what he has in the storehouses of himself because he is from forever, or as Isaiah would say about him, he inhabits eternity. I live at 274 Mill. His address is forever. He inhabits everlastingness and therefore he can give you everlasting life. When John the Baptist, Jesus' older cousin, showed up on the scene after 400 years of silence, the first prophet sent by the Lord to break that Old Testament silence in the New Covenant era, John the Baptist, who was six months older than Jesus, said, Jesus has a higher rank than me because 
He existed before me. How do you say that about somebody who's six months younger than you? Because you understand that fundamentally he is God. When Jesus spoke to people who did not believe the gospel, the first thing he wanted them to understand, he is eternal. He said to Jews who were very religious and knew their Bibles better than all of us, at least the words on the page, Jesus said to them, oh, you think you're connected to Abraham? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Wait, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Before Abraham was born, I am. He's eternal. Matthew began his introduction of Jesus in his gospel, quoting from Micah in the Old Testament to say his days are from eternity, Matthew chapter two. In one of the last prayers, Jesus prayed before he was mutilated on a cross for your sin and mine. He told his father that he was very eager for the cross to happen. And the reason he was eager for the cross is not because he loved the pain and agony of it, but because of what awaited him on the other side. Father, Jesus prayed, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was created. If you don't believe he's eternal, you cannot have eternal life. A God who is not from forever cannot save you forever. Jesus can save because he is eternal. We worship him because he's God. He has forever been and will forever remain God. That's the first point, he's eternal. Second, he's incarnate. That means God became man. That means the divine stepped into time. That means the incomprehensible infinite God of the universe took on humanity. He assumed a human nature without relinquishing, which is impossible, any of his deity. He's eternal. Think about his conception and his birth as we think about his incarnation. In direct fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies, Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 14, Jesus took on humanity by being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Thus, he was not infected with the sin nature that you and I share, that we inherited from our first parents, as has every person who has ever lived on this planet. All people are depraved sinfully in our nature because we're all rightfully infected by Adam's sin. Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, truly God and truly man, two natures, one glorious person, had no sin. The angel said to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Nine months later, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem 
in direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It says, while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, Luke chapter two, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. He's incarnate. He's God in the flesh. The scripture is consistently clear about this essential Christian truth that Jesus can save you forever because he's from forever, but he can save you because he took on your humanity. Overviewing his life, we know that in his early years, he had to take flight to Egypt. Mary and Joseph packed up in haste and left because of Herod's command to slaughter the Hebrew babies in the region of Bethlehem, Matthew chapter two. But that Herod foolishly did not understand was a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, namely Hosea chapter 11, verse one. After Herod died, his parents brought him back, not to Bethlehem where he was born, but to Nazareth where he was raised. We don't know a lot about his early years, but we do know what God intends for us to have access to. We know that after Herod died and that news reached Joseph's ears down in Egypt, he brought his family back to Nazareth where Jesus grew up as the oldest of at least five siblings, Mark chapter six. We don't know much about those early years, as I mentioned, but we do know some significant moments. One of those is recorded in Luke chapter two. Listen carefully. When Jesus's parents did not find him after a worship excursion to Jerusalem and their entourage returning back home to Nazareth, they didn't find him in that entourage. They returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He had a deep messianic awareness at least by age 12. And I say it that way because I believe Jesus grew just like you and I do. He didn't grow into becoming the Messiah. He has always been him. But in taking on your humanity, Luke 2.52 says he grew in wisdom, favor, stature with God and men all the days of his life. He learned just like you and me. That means from the time he was born, at least until age 12, being a student of God's word and a carpentry apprentice under his father, Joseph, Jesus was becoming aware through the scriptures that he is the Messiah, that that Old Testament promise, which astonishingly Jesus wrote. We know that those early years materialized into adulthood, it is highly likely. If any of you have walked through the loss of a close loved one, Jesus can identify with you more than anybody else because it's 
almost certain he lost his father at a young age. But by the time he's an adult, his baptism, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him, and being tempted in the wilderness are the introduction to his public ministry. John the Baptist, Jesus' older cousin who understood that Jesus existed before him, had gained a lot of notoriety. His outfit was a little odd to people, but that was an emblem that he's the New Testament Elijah. His diet was also odd to them, also indicating his prophetic role. But it was mainly his bold message. John the Baptist's message was clear as it was simple. Repent. You cannot stay as you are and be friends with God. Repent. They might not have thought it was funny. <laughs> I love that laugh. I think that was a laugh. That was like perfectly timed. Repent. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He accompanied that message with his ministry of baptism. It's doubtless that he baptized hundreds, most likely thousands of people. And then one day, in the midst of that message and that ministry of baptism, he saw Jesus coming to him. He, of course, knew who Jesus was. But on this occasion, he announced in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, was baptized by John. Jesus' baptism was not because he needed to repent. But it was to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3, the sinless Savior, if you can picture it, allowed himself to be dipped by John into the waters where thousands of sinners like you and me were plunged as a picture that he would take the filth of their crimes against God upon himself in order to carry them all the way to Calvary and die in their stead so that they could be cleansed as that water signified. Immediately after his baptism, the heavens opened validating that he is who he had already claimed to be and John professed him to be. He is the God man. He is the savior. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's your only hope for redemption. The Holy Spirit testifying to that reality by bodily, uh, by physically descending upon him in the form of a dove and a voice coming out of heaven for all to hear. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's his baptism. That's the descent of the Holy Spirit. Jesus then, as you will remember, was immediately led away into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. He was tempted by the devil. And as the second Adam, he overcame every assault of Satan against him. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then his public ministry begins. His obedience is impeccable. His active righteousness fulfilling the law, every jot, every tittle, every stroke, every dot, completely fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus for three years. The Lord Jesus went around proclaiming one primary message, the kingdom of God is here. The reason he emphasized that point no less than 60 times is because he is the king of God's kingdom. Beginning in Judea, from whence he called his disciples, continuing in Galilee, 
and back to Judea before he was crucified, his three plus year ministry fulfilled every single Old Testament promise God had made over 700 of them meticulously fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. If you don't turn to Jesus by faith as your savior, it is not because God has not made it abundantly clear that he is the redeemer for sinners. His primary message as the kingdom of God is summarized in his very first sermon. The first sermon Jesus ever preached was one sentence long, Matthew 4, 17. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. In addition to his words for three and a half years, Judea, Galilee, back to Judea. In addition to his words that clearly proclaim that he is the long awaited Messiah, his miracles authenticated the reality that he is the sovereign king of the kingdom. Now, how could you have seen what I'm about to summarize? This isn't exhaustive and been so blind that you couldn't see the obvious that he's the king of the kingdom, that he's the savior God promised. In his early ministry in Judea, he turned water to wine. Many tasted it. He healed a lame man and many saw him. He healed a little boy and calmed a storm. He healed a demoniac, both physically and spiritually, a bleeding woman, Jairus' daughter, two blind men, and a mute demoniac. A lot of people saw that. He then transitioned his ministry into the northern regions of Galilee. When he got there, he immediately healed a Gentile woman's daughter, a deaf man. He went to the Decapolis, the city of 10, and healed there. He went on a mountainside and healed multitudes of people. In the city of Capernaum, they came to him all day long. He healed them all. He healed a blind man in Bethesda, a disabled woman on the Sabbath day. He returned down to Judea and to Perea, which is across the Jordan River, just before his crucifixion. While he was there, he healed a man born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He cleansed 10 leprous men. He restored Malchus's ear in front of at least 600 soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. His message and his miracles are so authenticating that he is the only savior for sinners that God had long promised to sin that you have to be willfully ignorant to deny that he is the one you must trust for your redemption. Which leads us to the last week of his life. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers, devote a wildly disproportionate amount of their material to the final seven days of Jesus's life. The week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus accounts for almost half of Mark's gospel and about a third of all the others. That would be wildly disproportionate unless of course, that's the point. After spending the first half or two thirds of their material, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, substantiating that Jesus is the Christ, which is what I've tried to do for these opening minutes, that he is the long awaited savior promised in the pages of the Old Testament, all four gospel writers turn their attention to the main point of the entire book, not of their gospel, I mean the whole Bible. The main point is what transpired in those last days and hours of Jesus's earthly life. What transpired? 
we see that the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. How did that mainly happen? Passion week. The narrative begins to unfold in the gospels in slow motion. You're able to soak in every single prophecy, all the fulfilling details of Jesus's life and ministry that he was in fact obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross, Philippians two. Obedient to whom? To God, to his word. He's in total control of the entire episode. He's commanding where people go, what they do. He's even telling people what will happen when they go have conversations with people that he himself will not be part of. What they will say, how they will respond and what will happen after. He's in total control of the entire situation. John chapter 10 cannot be more clear. Nobody took Jesus's life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. He also raised himself back by his own power. From that last week of his life, beginning with his lament over the city of Jerusalem, weeping over a rebellious people who would not embrace him as savior, that fulfilled what Jeremiah promised would happen. From after his lament and weeping to entering the city, riding on a donkey, fulfilling meticulously what Zechariah said would happen, his series of teachings that final week of his life, even as the religious leaders were busy conspiring against him how to kill him because they couldn't stand for him to exist in their city and region any longer. That fulfilled meticulously Isaiah's prediction. At the Last Supper, when Judas betrayed him, fulfilling the predictions of the Psalms and other Old Testament passages, Jesus's agonizing, blood-sweating intercession in the Garden of Gethsemane to his arrest and the unjust trials which followed that fulfilled so many Old Testament passages. Look at the footnotes of your Bible. Followed by Peter's denials of Jesus and Judas's suicide, exactly fulfilling the Psalms and the book of Zechariah to Pilate and Herod who hated each other until of course they became friends because of their mutual hatred of Jesus. And they became pawns in the hands of almighty God to fulfill God's redeeming purposes for his people to give his son a bride through his death and resurrection, which Acts chapter two and chapter four declare unequivocally, God was in control of the whole event. The point of the gospels is this, Jesus, is the savior that God promised to send. And as the passion narrative, that's the final week of Jesus's earthly life unfolds before his death. And then we see him on a cross. We see that his labors meticulously show without question, he's the savior that the Old Testament had long ago promised. Let's go to the cross. This is the point of all the points. This is the focus of the entire Bible, coupled together with the resurrection. This is the reason God created the world. God was determined to display the full panorama of his perfections. Without human redemption, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. God does not need us. But to display the full panorama of his perfections, he was pleased to put his son forward as the atoning sacrifice for sinners so that the glory of his agape love could be put on magnificent display. For the creator to display all of God's perfections 
the self-sacrifice of God the Son to be the sinner's savior was required. Hebrews 2 puts it in a must. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Dear ones, if you want to know, and I mean really know what God's heart is like for you right now, whatever you're going through, have gone through, whatever you've done or are still doing, if you want to know what God's heart is like, take a good long look at the cross of Christ. Look at the bleeding Savior who died as the quintessential expression of divine love. Jesus, having been beaten to a bloody pulp, stripped naked and tacked with railroad spikes to a wooden cross on a hillside overlooking Jerusalem, happened because God loves you. Because Jesus gave himself for you, nobody can say God hasn't done enough. He literally gave his all so that you and I could share with him in the bliss of God-centered delight forever, which is our final consideration, the resurrection. After explaining that his lifeless body was slinked over the shoulder of Joseph of Arimathea, who took him down from the cross and carried him and laid his corpse in a newly hewn tomb, each of the four gospel writers take pains to declare he didn't stay there. No matter what orders were given, what kind of seal was set, how many guards were stationed, the announcement is undeniable. He is not here, he is risen. Please don't give your life to a dead redeemer, a savior who can't save. Paul said, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, please don't be a Christian. He said, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain. If Jesus is still dead, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. But if he is raised, then he says things like this. The risen Jesus speaking to the churches in Revelation, I am the living one who was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. There's only one set of keys in the universe to death and hell and Jesus is holding them. He says, I possess the keys of death and Hades. If you rest in him by faith alone, he'll save you forever. Hebrews 7 says he'll be able to do that because he lives forever. Romans says he was declared to the universe to be the son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. And you can be born again. You can be made right with God through 1 Peter 1, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Acts 1 says that that Jesus who got up from the dead ministered for about 40 days, appearing at different times to different groups of people, to over 500 people at one time, who were still alive when the New Testament was written. If you didn't believe this message, just go ask them, and none of them deny. All 11 faithful apostles give their life all the way to martyrdom, minus John, who died in old age, for the message of the resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament tells us he then ascended to heaven, where he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And one day, oh man, a lot of people may not know Zechariah's book. A lot of people may not know who Zechariah was. I promise you, on the authority of God's word, 
One day, every single person who's ever been born will be able to quote a sentence that Zechariah wrote. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He's coming back bodily. He's going to fix everything. A new heaven, new earth, eternal bliss, no pain, no tears, no crying, no sorrow. Better than that, no capacity to sin for anybody who had trusted him on this side of eternity. You will be stripped from your depravity. You will no longer experience sanctification. You will be like the risen Jesus. You will be glorified. You will be able to maximally delight in God and all that is God glorifying for endless eternities in ever increasing measure. You will never get to the edges of the fullness of Jesus. You won't find the bottom. You won't find the brim. You won't get to the top. You will know how high and wide and deep and broad is the love of Jesus. You will know the unknowable love of God. You will be able to fathom the unfathomable glory of Christ forever because the risen Jesus has made it so. He's going to come, according to 1 Thessalonians, to do two things. He's going to deal out retribution to everybody who doesn't obey the gospel. And he's going to come to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed. Dear friends, the whole Bible is about this. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. If you don't know Jesus by faith, if you don't know Jesus by faith, you can know him right now. You can know him right now. The Bible says to know him, you must come to him on God's terms. What a favorable invitation. Turn from your sin. That's all that Jesus died to free you from. Turn from your sin and put your trust in the risen Jesus. And the Bible promises you will be saved. After we pray, I'm going to ask members of our church. I've already asked two, but at least three or four more. Please come and help. After I pray, we're going to distribute the elements. While those elements are being distributed, we're going to sing a cappella, O come, all ye faithful. And then I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Thank you for Jesus, the King of the universe the most glorious, fascinating, intriguing, magnetizing, alluring, enchanting, captivating, glorious person that we could ever know. Thank you that you have made yourself known to us. And we ask that you would make us more acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ truly than any other person we know. And that our whole life would be flavored by the aroma of the King of the universe with whom we walk in fellowship, and in love, even with his people who help us to know him more. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.